Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlow Castain. What's the difference between agroecology and regenerative agriculture? Not sure? Well then, what about holistic grazing, organic, no-till farming or AMP adaptive multi-paddock grazing? Well, in this programme, we hope to get to the bottom of all this terminology that now seems to be so omnipresent in the nature-friendly farming Twitter sphere. I'm joined by two women who are going to help me slug out some definitions. From Roots of Nature, we have regenerative agriculture expert Caroline Grindrod, and from FAI Farms, we have Kelly Watson, who's going to help us keep our feet on the ground. Welcome both. Hello. Hi, Kelly. Hi. What we're going to try and do here is to tap into the incredible knowledge resource of Caroline's brain. Well, at the same time, Kelly, I want you to metaphorically sort of sound the horn if you think our definitions are starting to get too theoretical so that we can make sure that we stay rooted in practical farm management as far as possible. And just before we kind of really get started, Kelly, do the differences between these approaches to nature-friendly farming really matter? For me, I'm not sure it's whether the differences matter uh, in terms of the approaches. It's more about understanding what those differences are because, you know, in your introduction, Finlow, you've already talked about agroecology and regenerative agriculture. And my understanding, and Caroline may put me straight on this, is agroecology is an umbrella, you know, an umbrella term for a number of different farming approaches that sit within it. And regenerative is one of those. So for me, it's about people being able to get hold and understand these terms and feel confident in what they mean. Um, so for me, you then mix in all this stuff around AMP, no-till, and then you put in an approach like organic. Well, where does that all sit? Caroline, regenerative agriculture is clearly the gold standard so far as you're concerned. So what distinguishes regenerative agriculture from agroecology? Thanks, Finlow. And I'd be cautious about saying that I think regen is the gold standard. I think there's a place for it to the ecosystem of, of things going on and that's quite right and that's actually part of this whole concept really. So I think Kelly's absolutely right. I think agroecology is quite a broad term and I haven't come through that sort of particular pathway but the way I understand it and the way I frame it is that agroecology is really the application of ecology or ecological principles and to some degree regen is one of those so we absolutely use ecological principles for carrying out regen or or being regen or getting regenerative outcomes so that's absolutely true I think. So with agroecology perhaps it's a, it's a broader spectrum um, that takes in lots of these different approaches to nature-based agriculture, where regen is one type of farming that fits within that sort of eco- agroecological spectrum. Is that fair? I think that's a reasonable way to describe it, yeah. What about, you know, the others? <laughs> I mean, how do, how do holistic grazing and organic and no-till farming and AMP fit into that, that sort of broader picture? So my kind of lineage towards um, regen ag was through holistic management. And we'll start with that. So holistic management was developed by Alan Savory, and it's a framework for managing complexity. So holistic management is the framework itself. And one of the procedures and processes within that framework is called holistic plant grazing. So people are often using that interchangeably and saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using holistic management talking about grazing, but they're two very different things. So holistic plant grazing, you definitely need to use within the framework, but you can use the framework to manage a hairdressers or a government or anything else. So it's important to understand that distinction. So I absolutely use the framework of holistic management to do regenerative agriculture and teach regenerative agriculture. So that's how it fits together, really. Okay, so we've got there um, holistic management and holistic grazing being two separate terms. So both of them are linked to Alan Savory's work. Holistic management is something which 
is much broader, which is a management um, application that you can apply to uh, to anything, whether it's a grocer's, a hairdresser's or, or a farm business. But holistic plan grazing is specifically a regenerative agriculture grazing approach that's developed by Alan Savory. Organic. So organic, again, you can be... Um, regenerative and organic um, but organic doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be regenerative and in fact I work with a lot of organic farmers who um, have set off with all of the great great intentions and then have ended up just getting derogations for worms and and losing soil health and and all the rest of it so it's a set of practices and and sort of standards um, and prescriptions and protocols but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting regenerative outcomes. So so that's I mean I, I, I know I know that it this is really frustrating for you because you immediately want to get into all the detail of um, of, of these these different systems. Um, but just help us out with with no-till farming and uh, an AMP adaptive multi paddock grazing. How do they fit into the picture? Yeah, so no-till is one of the practices that you might you might use within regenerative agriculture. So again, it's just important to realise that the practices are not what regen is, and we'll come to this later. But it's about working with a set of principles um, more than it is about just adopting a practice. So no-till means that you're, you know, you're just keeping the soil covered and you're not using a plough, and that is one of the practices. And there is a big movement just around that, and often it is a starting point to get into regen, but it isn't just, re- you know, you're not re- necessarily regen if you just adopt no-till. And amp grazing, um, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, I think I would be right in saying that this came about, Alan Williams, I think, originally coined the term and sort of interchangeably with flex grazing. And again, he's evolved his thinking and his terminology now, and I think he calls it adaptive security. Chip. Um, but ultimately, it was really, I think, because they wanted to start to bring some science into holistic management, which has always been one of the sort of sticking points that because this is context specific, holistic management is going to be different to each farmer. Very hard to actually fit into a reductionist science model. But in trying to do that, they decided that the word holistic was a barrier to some of the universities and things. They absolutely wanted to capture that this is adaptive. You know, they wanted to say that this is more than just rotational grazing or just mob grazing and having a standard set of kind of, you know, moves across the farm. This is absolutely about the the landowner and the the farmer getting engaged with their livestock and their landscape and and getting feedback from their decisions and then adapting their management to fit. Um, I'm going to just, because you brought in another another term there, which is mob mob grazing. And I'm just going to have to get you to define that in context of all this stuff as well. And again, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm scared that we're just going to get into more and more terms, but there's a lot, there's a collection of different grazing terms, which are, that, vaguely mean that you are putting your animals together in a group, using a fence to segregate your fields and then moving them around the farm in a rotation with a gap. Mob grazing is a term, a catch-all term that's being used for anything along that spectrum. Fantastic. Just to summarise, agroecology is a spectrum that takes in lots of different nature-based approaches um, to agriculture. Regen is one of those, which is um, much more focused on improving outcomes. It has an ecosystems focus that holistic Holistic grazing specifically comes from holistic management um, processes, uh, uh, frameworks that were developed by Alan Savory. And within that, then we have practices like no-till or adaptive stewardship, as you were calling it, or mob grazing. These are practices within that kind of um, bigger overarching sort of spectrum. I think that's a brilliant summary, yeah. Okay, (laughs) right. Let's move on. So Kelly, uh, let's just park that for a moment. At FAI, you're working a lot with retailers and brands. What phrases do you find people asking about most at the moment? So for me, the word of the moment, I guess, is regenerative. I think it's because people have got into the mindset, I think, 
where we were talking about sustainable before and sort of maintaining people are recognizing that we need to do more than that and we need to have a positive impact and i think you know regenerative that word itself you know does what it says on the tin kind of thing and people understand it but what i would say is that from a from the way we speak with clients they're using sustainable and regenerative sort of interchangeably I guess I've got a slight concern in that I'm not entirely sure. Some people have a very clear idea about what this means, but others are are making commitments or saying they're going to use regenerative practices without actually knowing what that means on the ground. And the conversation we've just had with, you know, Caroline sums it up for me because many of, you know, the way our food systems work, we've got standards in place. We've got prescriptive standards in place. That's how, you know, food brands and retailers have managed their supply chains. They put in a standard and then they can talk about what they're they're doing publicly I think from what you know as Caroline just said the practices in themselves don't make you regenerative I've got a concern about people using that term regenerative without really thinking about what that means in terms of change so there's a there's a whole piece isn't there about farmers needing to change their approach and their outlook but so do our food companies they're, they're going to have to think about how do we change our approach to accommodate this change in, in system and approach. So for me, it's regenerative is the word of the moment. And what I want to do is make sure that that is being used in the right way and, and not just being used as a, as a buzzword at the time. It's almost as though sometimes, you know, people just get bored with one word and they start using another, thinking that it essentially means the same thing. And there is, as you say, the danger that people use the word regen because they've kind of got a bit bored with sustainability or it's being applied to a, a few too many things. Things. It's about truly understanding that it is a genuine mindset change. There are practices within Regen that can help you get a bit of a sense of it on your farm. But until you sort of embrace that mindset change, you're, you're, you're not a Regen farmer. So, Caroline, you've been working on a new introduction to regenerative agriculture course with the team at FAI. How are you going to? Uh, how are you going about making Regen more accessible? So again, just to frame it, we've come from a farming system that's come out of a kind of a mechanistic view, worldview, I suppose. So since the age of enlightenment, we came in and we we suddenly realised that we could quantify and study and reduce and separate and understand things, and and that's totally right for you know anything to do with maths and physics and machines, and and we've come through that whole kind of period of science that d- did things in that way, and and it's got us a huge way forward. So, but the problem is that we've applied the same thinking to living systems, whether it's our bodies or whether it's an ecosystem, which is our landscape. And that's why we've ended up with these results with degraded soils and, you know, loss of biodiversity. That's exact, That's really the root cause of why that's happened is because we've been thinking about land and, and systems as if they're a machine. So that's absolutely at the complete heart and core of what regenerative agriculture is. So we've got, we've got a choice. We've either got to simplify it, reduce it and make it more accessible so that it makes people feel comfortable and can get in the door. Or we try and allow people to find their own way through it. And then eventually they'll sort of come to a point which is getting regenerative outcomes and they understand complexity and they understand a living system. And I guess as a movement, we've got to work out how to navigate that, which is why we get into such gnarly conversations around it all. So, yeah, you're right. We've At FAI, what we've done is we've, we've soon realised that there's such an appetite for regen in the retail world that we decided we wanted to start to build something for them so that they didn't end up just kind of, you know, diluting it, reducing it and greenwashing it. And, and it's incredibly important because we just don't want to end up with the same mess. You know, that's the whole point of why we got to Regen. So we've come up with a kind of set of ecological principles. And then we are 
using those principles to try and improve the ecosystem processes. So the ecosystem processes that we use are the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, photosynthesis, airflow, and then we talk about the fact we weave those together with nature's dynamic networks. So we, we work with those ecosystem processes and that's the way we can measure our outcomes. And then to achieve the increase in those ecosystem processes, we have a set of practices and they'll vary from farm to farm and some people will invent their own practices. So that could be a whole range of things, you know, from um, no-till that we discussed earlier through amp grazing, through holistic plant grazing, through agroforestry, through composting. And ultimately, you don't know if that's worked. You don't know whether you are regenerative unless you've measured the outcomes, which is, um, you know, as I say, those ecosystem processes. So for the water cycle, it might be we've improved the infiltration rate. For the nutrient cycle, we can measure change in aggregates um, or whether we've got more earthworms or whether we've got you know there's a whole range of metrics we can use we can identify whether bricks is good in our plants we can use nature's dynamic networks to measure whether we're getting problem species or disease issues and red flags we call them and airflow we can sort of measure you know um, as i say how, how good our soil structure is so and, and those data components that you've just mentioned there that that the importance of monitoring is really sort of intrinsic to your process as well absolutely so the certain things that you can see that you do in region that generally get good regenerative outcomes whether that's a living root in the soil you know do not disturb so there's various sort of guidelines that you can come in on but it's just important to realize that that doesn't mean that your region just because you're doing planting a cover crop and using no-till doesn't mean that you're necessarily a region the only way to prove that is whether you're getting regenerative outcomes it's important not to become too purist about what that means because we want people to get on board and if all they're doing is actually following practices and they're still getting regenerative results that's a big step forward so i wouldn't want to stop that happening across you know large supply chains but it's just important to realize that there's more to it than that and it's important to understand the bigger picture region includes making sure the family is happy and healthy, making sure communities are happy and healthy. So Kelly, Caroline's just set out there three, if you've got a triangle, then the three points of uh, a framework approach centred around Regen. Um, there's the set of principles. We've got um, the practices, you know, the uh, one other corner of that triangle, but then the importance of monitoring because uh, it's the outcomes that matter. It's making sure those regenerative outcomes uh, exist and measuring and monitoring those outcomes that's really important. And so so if those are the sort of things that we're talking about at farm level, if we're thinking about an ordinary farmer who's perhaps interested in looking at Regen, what do you think are likely to be the easiest entry points for them? I think the practices is the easiest entry point. You know, you can say to them, if you're not disturbing the soil too much, if you're, um, you know, keeping ground, you know, cover on the ground, and then you can link that, I think, to the stuff around water and retaining water, you know, that, that when you have the practice and then add on top the kind of ecosystem process bit works. So for me, I think for farmers, that practice piece is probably how to get them started, isn't it? Now, I, I take Caroline's point that that's not the only thing. You can't just do that and then expect to be regenerative. So that that measuring piece and that kind of wanting to take the bigger picture, I think is important. But I don't think we can underestimate, and we've touched on it already, I don't think we can underestimate how big a mindset shift that entails for a farmer. You know, you farmed in a particular way for a particular farm, and the fact that you're even taking this step, but I guess for me it would be the temptation to revert back to what you know when something happens that you don't know how to deal with. So I, I don't think we can underestimate that even when you start these practices, that shift is difficult. You know, for me, when I saw the farm, at, you know, working, I had in my head 
you know, what good grass looks like when it's been grazed, it's uniform, it's short. And then it's a shock to you when you go out and you see all these different species and you see, you know, most people would say it looks a bit messy. You know, that that is a mindset shift, you know, that you have to kind of get your head around. So I, I think for me, the practices are the way in because people can kind of grasp them and you can talk to them about what they're doing within that ecosystem. But the mindset shift is the big one. Being confident to stick with it, I guess. So Caroline, we've talked about the principles of Regen on the podcast in the past to some degree of detail. And I wonder if you can just help us out with, you know, reminding us briefly what the main ones are and why they're important. Again, these are not hard, fast rules of nature. That's that's not a thing. But we, we define it by saying the seven sort of generally applicable principles in nature that we want to try and bring into our farming system. We work, work with networks. It's really to the point that nature is a network of interconnected living systems. What you do to one part of it will affect another part. So this is the kind of the holism piece um, that we, we absolutely need to sort of understand and, and work with in, in our regenerative systems. The next one is energy. Sunlight is the fundamental source of energy that drives all ecological cycle so you know everything in our system whether it's a lettuce leaf or a you know a, an animal has come from sunlight being converted in a plant at the soil surface so that's kind of absolutely un, you know critical to the understanding of how these things work and we can't increase our output without using inputs obviously um, unless we increase our photosynthetic capacity so we work a lot with that cycles important to understand that water and nutrients cycle continuously through a living system so we don't generate waste in a living system so we mimic the you know improve the water cycle the tension of water um, and, and make sure that's being utilised by plants, not running off a, across the surface and into our streams. And nutrients, we don't want to be getting them through adding fertilisers. We want to be able to use a living system that recycles its nutrients properly and can actually get, you know, get the, the nutrients out of, a, out of the rock so it's continually able to provide what the plants need uh, and our animals. And then relationships, there's unlimited number of relationships, interrelationships, they're all interconnected and woven together. So we need to understand that and be willing to work with it, the exchange energy. And again, it's back to this point that the, you know, the, the output of a whole system is greater than the sum of its parts. Actually, you know, when you've got more mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, you can tap into more nutrients. It's, it's not so much competition for nutrients. It means that we can actually explore more of the soil and we're buffering temperatures, we're buffering moisture so that we're getting more production out of the system and then diversity um, is another principle all ecosystems derive stability and resilience through the richness of diversity so yeah absolutely it's about we need to be able to add things rather than remove things so rather than test or a disease and how can we kill that um, or how can we kill that in a slightly less toxic way which we might think of in perhaps some organic systems we're thinking about what's it telling us and how can we advance you know the the diversity and increase the, the, the connectance of that system so that we're, we're not getting these booms and busts in population that are really causing us the problems in agriculture. And adaptation is another big one. An ecosystem is flexible and ever fluctuating network that adapts to its environment. So in our systems, we need to learn to be adaptive. We need to be in a conversation with the land all the time and the animals and looking out for what's happening and then responding to it, not sticking to a pattern or a plan. And then succession, which is really about ecological succession, which is how nature turns bare rock into a forest it likes to build and add and expand in complexity all the time. And it's really important to understand that every species has a niche in that ecosystem. It likes a stage of succession more than another. So if you've got a problem species, whether it's a rush or a thistle, it's because you've created the conditions and the, and the point of succession it likes. So it's our job to understand how to increase complexity to get past that point. So we're seeing the plants we want and not the plants and diseases that we don't want. 
a lot of um, specific principles there. And, and what I'm kind of getting in mind while you go through that list is that for a lot of farmers, when they make the transition, within a year or two, their farms are going to look very different. And so the mindset shift isn't just, it's not just something that's happening internally. It's something that's visual. This is why we can't use plans and prescriptions because every time you advance your soils in succession, they're going to respond differently. So you'll get different plants coming up every year and your animals will perform differently from year to year, depending on what plants are there. So we need to be able to make new decisions every step of the way, depending on what's happening in our outside environment. So it's absolutely the case that the farmer needs to learn how to become part of their environment. So it's in tune and is responding to it rather than simply being on the outside, imposing you know a set of standards or um, prescriptions. Kelly, we've just gone through that list so that we've, we've got, you know, the ecosystem processes. I've made my notes here, sort of networks and holism with sunlight, uh, productivity, photosynthesis, water and nutrient cycling, energy exchange, relationships between things, diversity, adaptation, succession. Do you think there are areas that are more challenging to explain to, to conventional farmers interested in uh, making the transition? Yeah, I think we, I think we've got a job to do, haven't we, around, around the communication of it because you want people to engage with it and so I guess for me we don't want it to sound so big just listening to Caroline there going through those you know principles I was it was the bit at the end that I really kind of went oh yeah okay we want our activity to be part of the ecosystem you know our the way farming's evolved I guess we have we sit on the outside and look in and we set stuff aside for nature but actually what we're saying is we want what we do to be accepted as part of a natural system if we're not careful we make it sound so so big that people don't feel that they can tackle it and I understand Caroline's point that we don't want to simplify it down to such a state that people just think you can tick a box and it's done but I also think there's stuff around you know the the tone that we use and presenting the opportunities because one thing we haven't talked about here is you know Caroline mentions productivity but productivity you know we're not saying you're going to go regen and you're going to have to accept a yield drop we know we're not saying that and I think we need to make that clear too. You know, the, the fact that you haven't got the inputs, you know, would naturally make people think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not going to get the return. But if I understand correctly, if you're working in a regenerative system, then you, you don't have to accept that your productivity is going to be low, for example. This isn't just about the planet. This is about you and your business. And actually, you know, ultimately, you know, you could be operating a much better business on the back of it. And just on that productivity point, I guess, again, it's about focusing on what productivity really means, because if you've got a farm which is, you know, which is greatly overstocked and you're bringing in loads of inputs from outside, then then transitioning that farm to a regenerative system is going to be quite different from a farm that is more or less stocked right, but is managing things in a conventional way that's then transitioning to regen. Because at that point, you are likely to see quite a rapid boost in product Activity. You're absolutely right, though. It's a really good point. And we've just started pinning this down, actually. And we started sort of screaming it like, you know, um, we need to re- redefine productivity. If you focus in on one element of production, like your biomass production from your grass or your dry matter or weight gains or whatever that is, or, or milk output or, or whatever, you lose sight of the whole system. And, and, and again, Kelly's point is really important that, you know, we have to then understand that we're part of this whole system. So, okay, we may not be getting 
getting in a month. If you took a month snapshot, we might not get in that month the same productivity output in terms of dry matter. But if you take the whole year, the, the fact that you've buffered rainfall, so you're not going into drought, or you're not flooding and saturating the soils, or the animals are healthy and happy and sh getting shade and shelter, and are picking the right nutrients that they need to then unlock these other plants. Overall, the whole system is going to be more productive and you may be able to completely drop your fertilizer bill and you may be able to reduce your medication bill down. So that's the really key point. And as you say, Finlo, it's not just as simple as saying we're increasing output. It's about, okay, well, are we doing that without all of those ghost acres? Because essentially a hundred acre farm could produce something equivalent to a 300 acre farm that buys in enough grain. So it's making that distinction as it, and making sure that we're, yeah, we call it redefining productivity. And through all of that, you know, I'm just reminded of this phrase that, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, variously over the last few years, which is, you know, that the way that we've approached farming over the last few decades is, is to be able to farm despite nature. And what we're talking about here is changing to a system where we're recruiting nature to work for us, where uh, we can reduce our inputs because nature's doing it on our behalf, where we can reduce the costs because nature's becoming the staff and, and they're sort of working for us on the farm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in rewilding, you know, I, I work a lot with conservation organisations and that's the same problem. You know, they, they, in some circles of conservation and rewilding, they think that people just should just get out of the way because nature, so-called nature, can do a better job on its own. But they forget that we are absolutely intrinsically part of nature and we're missing a lot of the key predators and processes that will be happening in a pristine environment. So really, we've got an opportunity to take up that role ourselves as keystone species and say, right, we need to understand how to work with these principles of um, ecology because we need to step into that system and start to run it, you know, so it's, it's working well. So, Caroline, the data monitoring aspect uh, I'd like to come back to now. Your approach is centred on uh, core ecosystem processes, which are at the heart of regenerative agriculture. And I wonder if you can give us some examples of the kind of outcomes that you think are really important and the sort of monitoring Monitoring, monitoring and data that you have in mind. Yeah, and again, everyone's going to have a different approach. So Sabre's got ecological outcome verification, which is a proper certification based on what have you managed to achieve, and it defines its four ecosystem processes slightly differently. But the way that we've done it for FAI is um, we we're actually we're monitoring a huge range of data sets and for the reason that we want to understand which are the best proxies, because we want to ultimately find something that's extremely easy to pick up by a farmer and gets the job done. Again, a lot of the problem with some of the more technical end of regen, you know, where it's going down that kind of analyzing soils and getting super technical about your monitoring is it's putting a lot of people off. So it's trying to find that middle ground, which is giving you the, the feedback you need, but the actual process of getting your hands in the soil itself is, is, as Kelly says, it starts to advance your thinking about yourself as part of the system. So that's important too. So we've come up, we monitor a huge range of things and I can't go into them all, but for instance, in the water cycle, we're suggesting that some key measurement tools could be infiltration rates um so how quickly can the rainfall actually get into your soil and how is how, you know how effectively is it held in there um, so, so that's just kind of almost like using there's a sort of a chimney experiment isn't there where you stick the chimney yeah. on the on the soil pour in some water and see how quickly it drains exactly so we've got hydrophobic soils that are repelling water because of the, what we've done to them so and also we'd we're creating capping that means that all of that rainfall is running off and then we're going into drought and we're booming and busting and drought and, and floods so um good infiltration is one of the indicators that suggests that we've uh, you know got better soil health and we can retain water so that we can 
feed our plants better throughout the, throughout the season. Um, we could record biomass production over, over a year. So we could say whether that's in animal days or dry matter, we could say that over the year, we've buffered the system so that it then is producing more consistently throughout the year. So we take that over a wider span. So there's a, a couple of things, the nutrient cycle, and we might measure carbon. Again, carbon is important, but it's becoming the next hook that everyone jumps onto. We have to be cautious. Carbon is one of the things that's important. And, also, and how would you measure carbon? What's the what's the best, sort of cheapest and most effective way of, uh, of measuring carbon? What we've done, and again, this is a huge topic in its own right with much debate. We are using loss on ignition and we're going down to 50 centimetres. There's now some evidence that carbon sequestered much deeper than we thought. If you had enough money, we'd go down to a metre, but um, we don't. <laughs> so um, 50 centimetres seems accessible. We take it in three different zones through that, you know, zero to 10, 10 to 30, 30 to 50 centimetres. Uh, and we also do bulk density so that we can work out stocks at a later date. So we would we'd basically work out, you burn that sample, it works out how much you know organic matter and how much organic uh, carbon you've got in there. So that's how we would do the carbon. And what about things like worm counts and so on? Are they are they really good indicators? We've got worm counts under, yeah, so part of the nutrient cycle, we might look at worm counts again. On its own isn't a good enough measure because depending on your how far along the scale of bacteria to fungi you get in the ratios, you will get different worms in different environments. So, But it's, it builds a picture. That's what's important. We're building a picture. We could measure the nutrient quality of the forage. So you can do soil analysis and there's people that are doing incredibly detailed soil analysis, but you've got to be very cautious there to understand that we're not after soluble nutrients here. What we want is available nutrients that are complexed into organic compounds. So um, just the standard toil- soil test is not a good indicator of soil health. In fact, in some respects, you could say that in a natural system, nature wouldn't allow very soluble nutrients just to be floating around in the, in, in the you know, in the pool, basically. Um, it would be complexed into organisms and soil structures. So it's very complicated. We, we can't really go into it here. But ultimately, yes, we can do very de- detailed soil analysis. And we do do. We are, are doing that in the chemistry. We are monitoring the biology. So we're fungi, um, bacteria, predators of the system and the ratios of those. Um, we're, we're, we're coming up the system to make sure, are we are those nutrients actually getting into our plants? So we're, we're monitoring the plants' nutrient levels. And we're also doing blood tests and hair samples on the on the animals. So we can say, okay, it's in the plants, but is it getting into the animals or is there things locking up that system? I wouldn't expect average you know, farms to need to do that. So what we tend to do is use soil mentor for the structures because the physical structures of the soil are a bit of an indicator proxy. And earthworms is part of that. So and there's a whole range of different things that you're monitoring there, different outcomes that you're looking at, uh, you know, all you know, all associated with those those key principles that you were mentioning. If farmers are interested in moving towards regen, but they're not yet ready to make that kind of big leap, um, what would you say? are the most important? If you had to pick out three or four indicators that they ought to start monitoring straight away, um, even before doing anything else, um, to get a, to, to start getting a sense of where they are, what would they be, do you think? Mine would be the aggregation of the soil, so a VES assessment of the soil structure. It would be plant density on the soil surface, you know, how much bare soil have you got and how many plants have you got growing? and water infiltration. I think those three would get you quite a long way. Um, it's Fantastic. certainly not all of it. And, yeah. and, and two of those at least are ones that, that farmers can do without spending any money at all. Um, exactly. you know, they, well, yeah. All we could achieve was getting them to go and do that on the land. It would make a big difference, I'm Fan- sure. Fantastic. Kelly, some of the information that Caroline's talking about monitoring there, just, you know, some of it seems to be really quite straightforward common sense to me. And I wonder to what extent this information is already being collected by farmers or being required by um, suppliers. Chains. 
I think there is a lot of data, you know, that's recorded. But to Caroline's point, you know, for example, farms may be soil testing, but that's not necessarily for what we need to do when we're looking for a renewable outcome. So, I mean, I think for me, there's some really nice entry level points there for farmers, this infiltration test, earthworm counts, or, you know, these are quite bare cut, looking at bare ground to me seems a nice way to get people started, which doesn't involve expensive testing and just gets people thinking. So, uh, you know, I think it would be unfair of me to say that that farmers aren't testing and aren't looking at these things, but I'm, I'm not sure in the context that we need to measure regeneration, if you like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure many people would be at that stage. But I think there's good entry level ways to get people started. I guess there's there's one final thing that we just ought to get into, because I think there's a sense, you know, if you're a conventional farmer and you're thinking about regen, there's a question of whether you're going to have to spend thousands of pounds on, uh, on consultants so that you sort of properly understand this, this shift, this big mindset shift and land shift that we're talking about. So just to give us a sense of the costs, Caroline, are people really going to have to spend thousands of pounds on consultants? No, I think like all of this stuff we've talked about, there's lots of different ways you can come at this and 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 you can do an awful lot by just starting to read things like you know alan savory's holistic management book and there's a hundred really brilliant regen books out there and that in its own right will start you thinking in a different way and understanding different practices and seeing all of this stuff come to, to life you know so actually just getting too busy reading and, and youtubing is a, is a great place to get going and some people depending on where you start depends on how far that'll get you um you know that might get you all the way um but if you feel that you know you want to uh, you know work with somebody in particular or you like a particular approach then you know it's really good to do what i, I always think was a good to do a foundation course. So we do one in wildiculture. We're building one with FAI. Savory does a foundations or everyone calls it something different, but essentially it's like a big immersion of two or three days where you really get into the, into the nitty gritty of it. You start to develop that different mindset. You're surrounded by people that are thinking in the same way and it massively helps you get started. And I suppose that there's different ways of approaching these costs as well, because, you know, if it's an individual farmer um, taking on the cost of doing that course for two or three days, then, you know, that's going to cost a few hundred pounds. But but if people get in touch with their AOMBs or their local NFU or um, NFU Mutual, then it might be that they can persuade those uh, organisations to put on these trainings. And then, you know, lots of farmers can club together or lots of farmers can, uh, can, can take part in this training at the same time and benefit from that sort of group approach. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to get a consultant to come in privately due to you that's going to cost a lot of money and consultants will be upwards of you know probably 400 500 600 pounds depending on who you go to and and what they what they do or you can go to a group training which is going to be you know i don't know three four five hundred pounds for for the three days probably and then you can always ask for a consultancy help in addition but it's just important to realize that in these types of approaches consultants don't work like the conventional agricultural consultants they don't come into a report and then you follow it quite the opposite they train you in the principles and the approach they help you and facilitate you in that learning journey i might give you some ideas is, but it's it you come at it a different way so you know for under a couple of thousand pounds of, of of good training and support you could definitely get to the point where you could probably if you're in a very conventional system of any size save yourself many thousands of pounds um over the years um depending on your scale and on what you're doing you know so again it's about slightly just looking at the big picture of what you might be able to achieve if you do this 
this um, but without real, you know, without knowing that you, you don't re- you really don't have to go and do some sort of 11 day course. You know, you can start at any point and, and work with what's available. And I guess that that message that, um, you know, it may well be that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a thousand pounds or a couple of thousand pounds investment over time. But you are likely to save a lot of money through reduced inputs um, over the course of those first few years. Uh, you mean and, and in perpetuity as a result. And so really, it's a relatively small investment to build your productivity and reduce your costs quite significantly. I'm not one to go out and say you'll be able to double your productivity because as we discussed, it depends on what your inputs are, etc. But you can become much more resilient. So you're not stressing all the time about the price of this and that. And, you know, um, and, you know, roughly you've got a business plan that works every year, regardless of what's happening in the outside world, and that you can get rid of a huge number of your inputs and, and it'll get better over time. So the point is you're making, you know, what profit you make is is profit. It's not just, um, you know, you can get rid of all of those unpleasant costs that, are, that happen to be really bad for the environment on the whole as well. Fantastic. Kelly, any final thoughts? No, I just think it's been, it's been so interesting interesting but today but I guess it's it is it's for me it's that bit about when you understand the what it is it's the how and the where so how do you start and where do you start and I think yeah you know that's that's what we need to get to isn't it fantastic yeah. uh, it's a difficult topic and I, I you know I think today we've made a pretty good stab at trying to shine some light on the difference between those systems you know at the outset um, all of which aim to help farmers work more closely with nature but then you know through the rest of the program to explain some more of the core principles and practices of of uh, regenerative farming. Well, that is all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Caroline Grindrod from Roots of Nature and Kelly Watson from FAI Farms. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Costain. Bye for now.